Berthog-Dubé syndrome affects a very small number of patients. What are we doing to diagnose and treat them? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss the diagnosis and treatment of this orphan disease, Berthog-Dubé syndrome, are Mr. John Solly, Charity Manager of the Myrovitis Trust in the United Kingdom, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to finding treatments and cures for rare diseases, and Mr. Eamon Marr, Professor of Medical Genetics at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Dr. Marr's research is on the molecular basis of inherited developmental and cancer susceptibility disorders, including Berthog-Dubé syndrome, and he is the head of the Cancer Research UK Renal Molecular Oncology Group. Gentlemen, welcome to ReachMD. Hi, good nice to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Dr. Marr, how many people in the world have Berthog-Dubé syndrome, and when was it first described? That's a, a really tough question because we know, for example, we just did a, a study between ourselves and the Netherlands, and we each had about 50-odd families, but the population in the UK is much higher than that of the Netherlands, so we think that we're grossly under-ascertaining families in the UK. It was only described in the late 1970s, and it's only really becoming more prominent, I think, over the last five or six years as the genetics diagnosis has enabled more families to be recognized. And some scientists like you, I think, believe that it is very much underdiagnosed. Why is that? What is it we just found out, and how is it helping us to classify patients as having the syndrome? One of the reasons we think it's, it's underdiagnosed is because it can be very difficult to recognize. So we see people in clinic who've for example, presented with kidney tumors, and nobody suspected that they had Berthog-Dubé syndrome. And it's only when looking at them very carefully that you can pick up other features of the disorder, such as uh, history of pneumothorax or the skin lesions. What's enabled diagnosis to be more accurate is the molecular genetic testing that's been available for a few years since the identification of the gene. And that allows us in patients where there's doubt about the diagnosis to do mutation analysis and uh, in many cases, identify the underlying mutation. And Mr. Sally, why have you chosen, and when I say you, I mean the entire Myrovitis Trust, to focus on this particular orphan disease? So there are two reasons. The first prosaic reason, I suppose, is that the source of funding for the trust has a particular interest in BHD syndrome. And then the second reason is that at the Myrovitis Trust, we're motivated by the idea of equality of opportunity. To us, it's unclear why it should be that if you have a genetic mutation that happens to be rare, why you, the drugs available and why the quality of treatment should be inferior from somebody who has a much more common genetic disorder. We, we feel that, you know, it should, it should be the same for everybody. Dr. Marr, could you describe for us the major symptoms and organ systems that are affected in BHD and when these symptoms generally first appear in the patients? Probably the commonest feature, the appearance of small whitish papules over the face and sometimes over the upper trunk. These typically arise for the first time in, in the early 20s. Often, as I say, they may not be noticed by the individual concerned. In some cases, they can be very prominent and they, they can be, uh, cause difficulties with their cosmetic appearance in some cases. But often, they're quite unobtrusive and may not be commented on particularly by family members, etc. The other common feature is, is pneumothorax. So patients will present with pneumothorax and often have recurrent pneumothorax from, from bullae in the lung. Now, again, typically in the 
20s is when we first uh, see these. The average age for for both of those features is, is in the 40s. But I think there's difficulty to say precisely when the skin lesions develop because they're, they're often overlooked for a long time. And then perhaps the more serious complication is a risk of uh, kidney tumors, including renal cell carcinoma. And average age for developing that is again in the 40s, but it can occur in the 20s or it may occur for the first time in the 60s. Overall, only a minority, maybe 20 to 30 percent of all patients will develop kidney tumors. So let's look more closely at what's going on with the skin. What specifically are these lesions and why do we think they appear? Well, the most common pathological diagnosis is a fibrofolliculoma. So they're benign tumors of the hair follicle. And as to why they should appear, we know that the Berthog de Bay gene is a, is a tumor suppressor gene. But why particularly inactivation of this gene should cause these particular tumors is unclear at the moment. Do you think there's a possibility that there are other genetic defects potentially in these three organ systems, the lung, the hair and skin follicles, and the kidney that might be associated with the other genetic defect we already know about? Um, I think the primary cause is the mutation in the Berthog de Bay gene, the folliculin gene. But obviously, if we have a kidney tumor, then we know that by the time we have a full-blown tumor, there will be multiple genetic lesions in a tumor. And so the initiating factor will be loss of function of the folliculin tumor suppressor gene. But subsequently, there'll be other mutations occurring. It really hasn't been studied very well for the fibrofolliculomas as to what additional events will be going on there. But when these additional events occur and perhaps other genetic factors may modify how severely a person is affected, whether they develop kidney tumors or not. But basic underlying cause is the mutation in the folliculin. And are there any treatments that are advised for these skin lesions? Do surgery or is there any other treatment that can be done? Mainly just for cosmetic reasons, various treatments have been used, but typically the one that would be used would be laser or, or sometimes just uh, shaving them, them off. Often, as I say, they, they're not that cosmetically obtrusive and people won't seek treatment for them. And Mr. Sally, is the Myrovitis Trust interested in finding treatments, preventions, better diagnostics for this disease and diseases like it? So for BHD as a whole, um, in terms of diagnosis, as Eamon mentioned, we think the primary cause is mutation in the BHD gene and, or the folliculin gene. And so we think that's pretty much mapped out. So diagnosis, we think, is pretty much there. We're very interested in finding treatments. For sure. I don't know that you could call them cures. That sounds perhaps a step too far. But we would be very interested in finding drugs or some other therapy that means that, that, means that inheriting a mutation in the BHD gene doesn't adversely affect your life. Eamon says that a lot of the skin lesions and so on aren't particularly cosmetically disfiguring. And that's, you know, that's often very true. But there are occasions, if they're particularly severe or in different people, where they can cause a certain amount of emotional distress. So if we can alleviate that, that's obviously a good thing. If we can remove the risk of pneumothorax, again, that's obviously a good thing. And if we can remove this 20 to 30% risk of kidney tumors, including renal cell carcinoma, or, or we can push it out so that the chances are that you know, something else will get you first, then that has to be a good thing. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss the diagnosis and treatment of the orphan disease Berthog-Dubay syndrome are Mr. John Solly, Charity Manager of the UK's 
Myrovlitis Trust, and Dr. Eamon Marr, Professor of Medical Genetics at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Dr. Marr, what do you think causes the lung cysts, and what do we do about those? Again, this, this is another one of those parts of Berthogde-Bay syndrome that there's relatively little information on. I suspect it's got something to do with a developmental abnormality as a result of abnormal signaling in, in the lung. But there's very little research being done on it. What kinds of issues does it cause in patients? If the cause is recognized as a pneumothorax, and as you know, the, the treatment can be, be relatively straightforward. And so it's important that all Berthogde patients are aware of the possibility of, of pneumothorax. So if they get short of breath, they can seek a, a medical attention. In some patients, they will go on to get re- recurrent pneumothoraces, and that will require a pleurodesis to fix the lung and, and prevent them getting uh, further pneumothoraces. And what percentage of patients actually have the skin lesions and the lung cysts? Is it a high percentage or a small percentage? Yeah, eventually a high percentage will have it, so the majority of patients will have it. I think with the skin lesions, it's going to become quite difficult because if you don't see the patients and don't look very carefully for them, they may not be there. But having said that, there are certainly some patients who may, for example, just present with a a kidney tumor who, who don't appear to have any evidence of the skin lesions. So let's turn our attention to those kidney tumors and the other things that are going on in the kidneys. What specifically do we see in BHD patients? What kind of kidney tumors do they get? And are those tumors similar to, in general, the kinds of kidney tumors that patients get? That's an interesting question. And initially, when the tumors were first recognized, they were described as oncocytomas. And then the pathology was very carefully reviewed. And they, they were shown to have to be atypical for that, to have uh, more distinctive features. Actually, what we tend to do is to put the emphasis more on the fact is that recent work shows that the histopathology can be much more variable and can actually include clear cell tumors. So clear cell kidney cancer is the most common form of, of kidney cancer in the population. And although only a minority of patients with Berthogde-Bay syndrome will develop the clear cell form of kidney cancer, we tend to put on the emphasis that because of the variability, there isn't one particular form of kidney cancer that you could say couldn't be Berthogde-Bay. So really, in patients with a, a family history of kidney cancer or kidney cancer at a very young age or bilateral tumors, we always emphasize that Berthogde-Bay should be considered as a possible cause, even if the histopathology isn't typical. So would we do a screening test for every patient that had that kind of kidney cancer to see if they had the Berthogde-Bay genetic defect? Would that be sensible? I think there's a case for that. I mean, we recently did a study where we took a series of patients who we had seen over many years. We collected DNA samples from them because we thought they had an underlying genetic cause for kidney cancer susceptibility. Either they had a family history or they had bilateral tumors or they had kidney cancer at a young age. So we suspected that there was an underlying cause there. We, we couldn't identify one of the well-known causes. So we went back to the samples and we did mutation analysis of the follicular gene. And we found just under 5% of these actually had a mutation in the Berthogde-Bay gene. So does everyone who has this defect in folliculin get classified as a patient that has BHD syndrome? I think for the moment, we would say that we found a folliculin gene mutation in an individual that we would consider them at risk of developing all features of Berthogde-Bay syndrome. 
it may be that in time we recognize that certain mutations are only associated with specific features of disorder. But I think it'd be a bit premature to speculate on that at the moment in, in Berthog de Beek. So, for example, some patients have been described as presenting just with familial pneumothorax. And when the mutation analysis has been done and the mutation in Berthog de Beek gene has been identified, in many cases it hasn't been obviously different from mutations that have been seen in patients who presented with straightforward Berthog de Beek syndrome. So it's too early to say that specific mutations might cause a specific phenotype. I'd like to thank our guests, Mr. John Solly, Charity Manager of the UK's Myrovitis Trust, and Dr. Eamon Marr, Professor of Medical Genetics at the University of Birmingham in the UK, for joining us to discuss the diagnosis and treatment of the orphan disease Berthog-Dubé syndrome. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire interview library, available through on-demand podcasts, and thank you for listening.